Hi, this is Cindy Surf, and welcome to Backstage at the Center. I'm recording this introduction today from our recital hall at the CCA. Every episode, I try to give you a glimpse behind the curtain and on the other side of the stage door at Chandler Center for the Arts. And today is pretty special. I had the wonderful experience of interviewing the amazing Ashley St. Armand. She's the creator, composer, and director of a brand new musical called North. This is her theatrical debut, and it's a first for the CCA. It's the first time that we're helping to commission an original piece of work. We're doing this in conjunction with three other venues across the country. This story is about relationships, about grit, about ingenuity, joy, and simply just being human. See those trees? They see you too. <laughs> They're alive and they've been here forever. And they've seen all the horrible things that have happened here on this land. And just like they protected my Thomas, they will protect you, guide you, and hide you along the way. You can trust them. Oh, what these trees have seen. I'm Cindy. I'm here with Ashley St. Armand, the creator of North, the musical. Thanks for joining me. I appreciate it. Thanks uh, for having me. Oh, it's it's exciting. We're really excited. We are one of the commissioning partners on this piece. It's a new original work that Ashley is doing. Um, we've worked with you before in the past, but this is something pretty incredible. So I can't wait for people to hear about it. Talk a little bit about what inspired this and what is it about? <laughs> That's a big one. Uh, North is a musical uh, about a boy named Lawrence, who's a teenager, and his mom named Minnie. And the story takes place uh, on their journey through the Underground Railroad as they seek their freedom from slavery. This show isn't about slavery, though. It's really about bringing humanity to the Black experience in the 1800s and about relationships and the multi multifaceted lives of Black folks in that time. I wrote this piece because a few years back, gosh, maybe four or five years now, I was talking to my sons about Black History Month and I had asked them what they knew and they shot out, you know, Martin Luther King and Harriet Tubman, which is great, but that was about it. I said, well, tell me what you know about the Underground Railroad. And they said, what's that? <laughs> so it's like, well, what do you mean, what's that? And I started talking about it and they were like, is it really underground? I've never heard of this. And, you know, I was like, how could they not know about this? Um, I don't know if it wasn't taught or if they just weren't paying attention, but it certainly wasn't a feature in their history learning experience in public school. So that really sparked my interest in creating a piece that really covered the breadth of, of experiences of Black folks, not just enslaved folks, but um, all people, um, especially Black folks in that time. And then I started thinking about my own experience learning about history in that in, in elementary school and in junior high school and how traumatic it was because my teachers were unprepared. I had a white U.S. history teacher in, in uh, junior high. I was the only black student in that class and he didn't know what to do. I'm sure he didn't have the tools he needed. So he just put on the movie Roots and sat back in the back of the class and ate ramen or something. <laughs> and it was a really traumatic experience for me personally I didn't understand, my classmates didn't understand, and I ended up having a classmate who called me a racial slur after that experience, and that stuck with me. And so I wrote this piece because I want people to understand that we were more than just slaves until the 19th century. 
we were, we still are <laughs> multifaceted people who live and love and have relationships and cry and mourn and play and, and make songs and music and make the best of things. And we always have been these people. And so I wanted to find a way to do that. And because I'm an artist, I did that through uh, making a musical. There is this history of talking about certain people as objects and not as people. And so that's really, really beautiful to remind people they're people. It is about humanity. It's pretty incredible. Do you think that where you were growing up or the place that you were growing up, that that was part of the reason or the difference in that experience? So I grew up in Orange County, California. My family is from New Orleans, but I call myself a first-generation Californian. <laughs> so my, my mother and, and further back, um, at least seven generations, is from New Orleans. So there's definitely a rich history of Black culture and about teaching about our history and our ancestors and things like that uh, within my family. But I think that that was more familial. My grandfather marched with Dr. King and was a civil rights leader in his community. My mother integrated an all-white school when she was in third grade. Um, so these are stories that have been part of who I am, but in a public setting, in a school setting, it was very minimal. Um, I think during Black History Month, we learned about the handful of folks that you, that I just mentioned, plus maybe like um, George Washington Carver, and yeah. that's about it. And so I, I don't know that, that that is a specific experience for me personally. I mean, it may be more specific that I grew up in a mostly white neighborhood, but in terms of the breadth of um, education about Black heritage, I think that's pretty standard, unfortunately. It was standard 30 years ago when I was going through it, and I think it's still standard today. It's really quite minimal what we learn, unless we have teachers who are who care enough and are bold enough to find resources that are appropriate for their students that make that experience more enriching, but that's pretty rare. What kind of research did you do to put the piece together? A lot of this research, if I could be honest, came to me in a very... Um, spiritually, I would say, um, and very much by happenstance. Um, I, I very much feel at this point comfortable saying that my ancestors have influenced this work because it's just pretty incredible how some of this information has come to me. But I started, uh, again, by happenstance visiting, um, I visited a plantation in Vashford, Louisiana because my family was enslaved there and I was visiting New Orleans for a different project. And I thought I should go to Vashri since I'm so close by because it's about an hour's drive nowadays. And I thought if my ancestors are from here, I wanna pay homage to this place and find out what it's about. And one of the few things that you can do in that town is go on a, a plantation tour. So that's what I did. And I learned so much from that experience. And uh, I went to Oak Alley Plantation um, and I've been meaning to call and thank them actually because um, they did such a beautiful job of um, highlighting the lives of all the people who lived there, not just the white folks who owned the big house, but the lives of the people who built that land and uh, unfortunately who were enslaved there. And I learned about individual lives of people. They So there's the big house and then if you do a, a sort of a 180 pivot, there's two rows of shacks where, pe where the enslaved people lived. And they have information about the individual lives of the people who live in each one wow. and what their daily experiences were like. So that was pretty eye-opening for me to the point where uh, myself and the group I was with, we sat in the grass and just sobbed for a while, which felt appropriate and necessary. And then this little like dragonfly came and landed on me. Like, okay, you've got to 
process this and then just breathe. Cause I just, I wasn't even breathing. It was so uh, intense. So anyways, I went in the big house and, and, and saw physical examples of the dichotomy of the lives there. And then there, because it's called Oak Alley, um, there are the oak trees that envelop the walkway. Instead of saying, aren't these trees so beautiful? The tour guide said, imagine what these trees have seen. And that immediately inspired the song, Oh, What These Trees Have Seen in the musical. But it also inspired me to place our characters in that space. Then while I was still there, I found out that my own ancestors had been enslaved in a plantation that was just down the road. It used to be down the road. So the people I just learned about were probably relatives or lovers or friends of my own, my own ancestors. So that was pretty impactful. And then after that, I started digging because New Orleans and the greater New Orleans area had a very interesting history. Um, it was, uh, you know, sugar plantations, which made for the, the most concentrated um, area of millionaires at the time. So this was big industry. So that I found really fascinating. So I did research about that. Um, also, you had the Creole free women of color, free people of color communities and quadroons who were women who were like a quarter or less black that had relationships with white men that they weren't married to, but had enough resources to own their own homes. And then that's how you have Creole cottages. And I found that to be fascinating. You had uh, free people of color who owned enslaved people of color, which was interesting. And then the Underground Railroad was sort of like this underbelly of that culture at that time. So I really did a lot of research. And then, you know, a year later, right in the middle of writing this, I went to a pride parade and I happened to sit next to a friend of a friend who happened to just move from to San Francisco from New Orleans, who was uh, a historian who worked at a plantation in New Orleans. So it, a, we made a later date. I took a trip back to San Francisco and she provided me with like a, a stack of maybe 10 books on all these different kinds of experiences of black folks in those times. It was just uh, a treasure trove of information. And then something that I learned about in that time was about the Maroons communities. And I'd never heard of that before, but they were folks who escaped slavery and then moved into the bayous instead of moving north. And in that way, they could build community um, for up to 10 years. They could gather resources because they knew the land and they knew where the plantations were and where they stored things like corn and livestock. And so they were able to sustain themselves for a long time. That became a very pivotal part of my writing, not only because it was interesting, but because one of the books that she gave me, I learned about this man named Tam the Brave who lived in the 1780s. And he um, was enslaved on the uh, Santa Mont plantation, which turned out to be the same plantation that my own family was enslaved on. You can't imagine what that discovery was like. Um, and I could go on and on. I mean, these kind of things kept coming to me. One of our other commissioning partners is uh, the lead center in Lawrence, Kansas, who I had worked with many times. And then I, after I we talked to them about commissioning this work, we found out that that town was actually founded on anti-slavery ideals. So it, this really has been kind of a smorgasbord of, of gathering. Um, I am kind of a history nerd. I love to watch documentaries and read books and learn about all sorts of things. But this, not has, this project has not been uh, very traditional for me in that way, but it's been really exciting. And I, I swear, the more I work on this project, the more I learn about it and about the lives of folks in this time. So it's alive in that way, you know?
the learning process, um, I think will never be over. I think what this work really is about is about conversation because it sparked so many for me and, and, and people keep telling me it sparks conversations for them too. Yeah, there are those conversations that haven't been happening. How did you go about composing the music for this? Someone had just asked me this too. It's like, did the lyrics come first or was it more of, uh, you know, the music and the instrumentation? For me, I would I would think about a theme. Okay, this is the story I want to tell. So, oh, what these trees have seen, for example. What I want to say about this. So I would think a little bit. I wouldn't write out the lyrics exactly, but I would think a little bit about, okay, what do I want this character to tell us about these trees? And then I go over to my piano and get inspired about a melody, a basic melody, and I would kind of put it in my phone. So Lord help me if I ever lose my phone because I have so many little ditties in my phone of ideas. Um, and then I worked with um, a wonderful arranger named Alex Sadnik who helped me realize these songs. And um, together we created this tapestry that not only needed to highlight each individual song, but tell a story, an overarching story throughout mm -hmm. the show. Um, and we were inspired by so many different kinds of music. I, I tapped into like Fela Kuti, for example, because I wanted the West African history of this sh of the show and these characters to be influenced by music from that region, traditional musical theater styles, um, big ballads like Nat King Cole, and I thought, oh my gosh, this is such a melting pot. Is it going to work? But then that's jazz, and that's my music genre, right? So I think of jazz as not only it jazz itself, but a culmination of all the music styles that came before it, including worker songs and the blues and and all of those sort of things and lullabies. And so we brought all those music styles together, I think in a really beautiful way. And we were able to record all this music during the pandemic at East West Studios, um, which is uh, this legendary studio. Um, but we really went there because they had the space and the capacity to be able to do it safely. But it was remarkable to be in this space for so many iconic songs. And in the midst of all that, you know, especially, um, 900 for Lawrence, which is the tune that accompanies a dance that many the mother does when she finds out that her son is to be sold. And when we recorded that song, I needed a break. I had to go outside and I grieved for all the mothers who had lost their children in this way. I grieved for myself too, because I'm a mother of two teenage black sons who are 15 and 17 years old. And I've had my own struggles with worrying about them, about their safety um, on a personal level, but also in a communal level. And um, it just hit me really hard. This, mu this music is real. It's alive alongside the characters and the rest of the show. I really put my heart into all of it and the music is included in that. It's really incredible. I've been writing this show for four years. But when we recorded the music, it was right in the middle of the Black Lives Matter movement and all the news stories that had been happening surrounding um, young black men being shot by the police. And at that time, my oldest son, you know, we have a dog and we have our walk schedule. So he was, his schedule was the latest one. So he would walk the dog around nine o'clock at night. And it got to the point where I couldn't even stomach letting him out the door at night. I thought, what? is this in 2021? And then to go into the studio and record that song, it was almost too much. 
it's so hard, right? We make ourselves so vulnerable when we have children anyway. Um, but I, I definitely understand. I'm very fortunate that I don't have to have the talk that you have to have with your sons. This might be really hard because this might be like choosing a favorite child. What is your favorite moment in the piece? What is the moment that you feel is the one that has your heart? I think that has changed for me over time. And this past week we did the workshop um, of North. So it was my first time ever seeing the show on its feet and seeing other people perform these songs. And that sort of changed everything because some things came alive and I grew an understanding about the characters and the relationships that I didn't have before. And it really truly was a workshop in that we kept changing and adding things as we went. And I think it was the second day, the final song is a song called Dreamland. And I actually wrote this song for myself. I'm out myself and I'm a performer as well. And I wrote this song Dreamland and I actually recorded the vocals twice because it just didn't seem to fit in my voice. And I told my producer that, I said, this is such a beautiful song, but it doesn't seem like it's for me. And so I just kind of tucked it away. And then when I was writing this musical, I was looking for a final big song. I thought, oh my gosh, Dreamland is perfect. And it just fit exactly as the culmination of everything that our characters experience in this show. So I already loved that song, but I couldn't necessarily say it was my favorite song of the show. But then when we got to the workshop, we had the idea to add harmonies to it and bring all the actors back at the very end of the show. And when we heard those harmonies for the first time, magic. I can't believe I didn't hear it before. And all throughout the week, you know, we had certain folks commissioning partners and, and um, you know, just friends of the project popping in during the workshop. And we would do our, you know, rehearsal runs or whatever. And they would, one after the other, everybody, everyone walked up to me and said, that's that last song. It's that dreamland, you know, to not give it away. You, you'll kind of have to experience it for yourself, but there's something that something magical that happened with that song. It's just no. something really special. It almost seems fitting though. Like that at the end, it, it needed all of those voices, not just one. Right. Yeah. That's, in, it that, takes, I love that. It takes everyone, you know, I love that. and that, that's kind of the idea of the show in, in its entirety. You know, we have all of the props, for example, on stage the entire time. So in that way, it's sort of like, we've got to use what we've got to make it work. And then at the very end, it takes everything um, to, I don't want to get this away, but the last thing we build on stage that we create on stage with the props takes everything. So in that way, it's like, it's just like the experiences that, that these folks had, right? It's like you use what you've got, but it, sometimes it takes everyone and everything to make it happen. And so designing Dreamland as a choral piece now totally makes sense. And um, it's a really exciting moment at the very end. I heard that the design, the costume design is pretty special. Can you talk a little bit about it? Yeah, so we're still in the works of that, but we are combining traditional uh, styles of dress from that time period, um, the mid 1800s, along with modern West African prints. And somehow it just gives this really interesting modern flair to our show, um, which gives it a uniqueness, but also somehow makes it relatable. Even if you've never worn period clothing or <laughs> West African fabrics, it gives it this fresh take on that time period. 
and um, and also is an homage to all the time periods and all the folks that it took to bring this piece together. It's very exciting. Everyone around here has been buzzing. We are really excited to be part of this project. So, you know, we're doing the Arizona premiere here on November 4th. It's a pretty big deal. What do you want people to walk away with? A couple of things. Um, One is that as a jazz performer, I've always said jazz history is our history because jazz tells the story of Black folks and our history through song. And the history of Black folks in America is part of all of our story as Americans. So I hope that whether it's in Arizona or any other state in America, that folks walk away feeling like they're a part of this story, that they didn't just learn something about Black people and their history over there, but that this was something that was significant to me. I hope that the characters feel like people that they know or that they can relate to that they find themselves in these stories. I hope that people have a different idea of what this time period meant for Black folks and who Black folks were and are. And so in that way, I've been saying, like, I hope people walk in with a a little bit of a fear, like, okay, I'm going to watch a play about slavery. This is going to be intense. And then they're walking to their car, dancing and singing and thinking, like, is this okay? Because I kind of really like that last song and I feel like I'm just kind of dancing and like, it's supposed to be about slavery, but I'm also really like, happy? Is that okay? You know? And I want people to know, yeah, it is okay. It is okay to celebrate the incredible achievements of Black folks from all kinds of communities over time, because um, just making it through the Underground Railroad to freedom was an incredible feat for folks who were largely undereducated and isolated and yet had all this ingenuity and wit and grit and playfulness that got them to where they landed. I'm really, really excited about it. Really quick, can you talk a little bit about how you came to be in a career of music? I don't know. (laughs) Um, I've always been a creative. I've always been singing. My mom said I came out of the womb singing. And I was the kind of kid who would like tap dance through the grocery store aisles, you know, that sort of thing. I started with musical theater um, when I was around 10 and did musical theater plays on the side of my educational career. And then when I was in high school, I went to um, a performing arts high school, which really helped me hone my skills. And then, you know, I became a mom shortly after that. So I homeschooled my kids for a while and that was sort of my world. And I grew up in a home with a daycare. And then my mother, once I was out of the house, she moved her daycare career into doing music for other daycares. So I had that example of like, she basically would do like uh, preschool music programs Mm -hmm. um, and still does by the way. And so when I had my own children, I had these Broadway dreams, but I was homeschooling. So she's like, well, maybe this is something you can combine because you know the world of, of children's education, but you also have this like, background in singing and Broadway and this sort of thing, maybe you'd be a great um, music teacher. So I started Leaping Wizards Music, which is a preschool music program at first. And I did that for many years. And in that way, um, I started writing my own music for that program. And eventually I had enough songs to make an album. And so I had a friend who helped me make an album and he had a home studio and he was like, oh my gosh, this is gonna be so fun. And so we put that together. And um, after that, People were like, well, when's the album release party? And I thought, "Uh, I don't know. So I put a little group together, like me playing guitar at the time, 
and a couple of background backup dancers, one of which is Monique Jones, who became the choreographer of North. Um, but we played a couple of shows and I really thought, man, I think performing children's music is more of a passion for me than actually being the music teacher or maybe a combination of both. And so I went to a conference in New York that was all about children's music artists and I was floored. I had no idea that this was a community, that this was a thing, that people did it full time, that you could get a Grammy in children's music, that you know this whole world existed. And so something I learned at that conference was you don't wanna just do children's music in general, you have to have your niche. And so I thought, well, I don't know if anybody's doing jazz for kids. So I put a band together and that was Jazzy Ash and the Leaping Lizards. And right away we took off. And I didn't realize at the time that there was this kind of hole in the market for um, women of color and women led bands and, uh, and jazz in the children's industry. And so the show kind of sold like hotcakes right away. And here we are nine or 10 years later, still performing as a group. Meanwhile, I was still teaching. And, um, and then in 2018, I was approached to do a writing project for Audible. And uh, I, I, I thought, yeah, I could, I've done some, some writing. I could do a long form story. And so I wrote a mystery novel for Audible um, called Viva Durant and the Secret of the Silver Buttons. And quite by happenstance, it did really well. And I ended up on the New York Times bestseller list. Wow. Uh, I can't believe that that's, I still can't believe that's a, a thing I can say, honestly. Um, but it's about this teenage girl um, who visits her grandmother in, the New, in New Orleans for the summers, which I did. Um, and she solves mysteries while, she there, while she's there, um, which I didn't do. But anyway, um, it's been really exciting and it became a series. So I'm still writing that series for Audible. And that sort of was the jumpstart for my career in writing. And so um, the, the seedling of North was right around that same time. And I really think North is sort of a combination of all of these things. My educational background, because I um, you know, have been a, um, a music and, and theater educator for many years now, my performance background, my writing background, um, all kind of coming together. And even re recording this music, the majority of the musicians who were in the studio recording the master tracks for North are my bandmates. Um, so it just really has been a beautiful um, culmination of everything I love. And especially this last week with the workshop, it was so interesting to look around the room and be like, oh, he's my bandmate. She was my dance teacher. She was my back backup singer. You know, this is my long-term friend. Sarah, the co-producer of this show is my long-term agent. And, you know, it's just, it's just been a really a beautiful, um, snapshot of everything I've done over the last decade. Wow, that sounds so lovely. So what are your aspirations for the show? Broadway. Let's start with that. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, but before Broadway, even if Broadway called tomorrow, honestly, I would tell them. It's important to me that this show has a run through small town America. I need this show to show up in places where people couldn't go to Broadway. I need little black girls to hear this story in person. I want multi-ethnic communities or communities with just one black girl in their class like me to hear this story and find something that they can cling to in it. That's really important to me. This, not, this show is not an educational show. It's not an after-school special, but it is important to me that people learn something from this show. And I think the best way we learn something about ourselves and other people is through storytelling. 
when we don't understand other cultures and ideas, it's because we probably don't know anybody who represents that idea or culture. And so bringing this story to small towns is really important to me. And then after that, I do, I do dream that it's going to go to Broadway and I believe that it can do it. I, I'm, I believe in this show and I've said it from the beginning that this show is bigger than me. I, I said it in this interview and I've said it many times that my ancestors are involved in this and it's more than just my play. The people who influence this show deserve to have their story told and I'm committed to um, seeing that through. Thank you so much. I really appreciate all of the time. Uh, North is going to be here at Chandler Center for the Arts on November 4th and November 5th. I'm looking forward to it too. And all my adopted aunties are Arizona uh, residents. So they're all coming. So this is going to be a wonderful community experience uh, for Chandler and also for me. So I'm really looking forward to this. That's great. Thank you again. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.